This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Are we all ready for a cashless society? It kind of feels like it, but maybe not. We're all tapping, transferring. When was the last time you used cash? You probably can't remember, but experts are warning even though the transition is definitely underway and we feel like we're almost there, there's a whole lot of stuff that we should be worried about in a world without cash. We're going to be getting into this later and speaking to young Australians about how they feel about this big shift. Also coming up, we're explaining the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. Look, it's a lot of history. Maybe it can seem a bit boring, but it's massively important to understand. So if you do want to know what that's all about, stay listening. First, though. Hack. The problem with Coles, everyone sees it. Everyone knows where they've been shopping. They see a billion-dollar profit and they go, hang on, isn't that our cash? On Triple J. How much more is your weekly shop costing you now? Like, what's the price increase that you spotted on your last trip to the supermarket that kind of left you speechless? Because for many Australians, it's changing the way you live. Maybe you're eating less fresh stuff, relying more on cheaper instant meals. I'm keen to hear. Message in 0439757555. The reason I'm asking is you might have heard that our two biggest supermarkets, Coles and Woolies, announced this week that they'd raked in more than a billion dollars in profits each. And it's got a lot of people angry that they're struggling while the big dogs are still raking it in. Our Tassie reporter, April McLennan's been looking into this. She's been hitting the aisles to find out more. Okay, so I just pulled up at the supermarket. Come with me and we can do some grocery shopping together and see how much everything costs. Okay, I've just gone to the meat section and this is wild. A hot chook, a bachelor's handbag is $12. That is insane. We have basic bread for like $2.90 and then the fancy bread over there is like $4.40 and we've got loaves of bread here for $7.00. Cheese is like between six and eight dollars, which is no surprise to anyone. The more expensive ones are like ten dollars, and grated cheese on sale is like six dollars, but some bags are thirteen dollars. Back to the safety of my car, and if you want to cry into a tub of ice cream because you've just spent half your paycheck on your groceries, it's going to cost you minimum six dollars, but some of those tubs were thirteen dollars for the real fancy ice cream. If you think these big supermarkets must be raking it in with these prices, you'd be right. For 2023, Coles have reported a profit over a billion dollars. That's an increase of 4.8% compared to last year. And Woolies have reported $1.62 billion in net profit for the full financial year. We are the fresh food people, but they don't tell you, you gotta refinance your house just to get bread and milk from them. Two packets of chips for $11. I thought maybe it's wrong. Since when? What happened to the $1.35 chips? Everyone's talking about this inflation, inflation. I'm going to see it for myself. I don't really know what's inflated. $5.90 for tomatoes. $5.90 a kilo. I'm sure these prices aren't really that much of a shock to most of you. You'll do groceries. But researchers at Deakin have been tracking prices nationally and their data shows that some food items have gone up in price by 40% in the 12 months to July 2023. And if you're like, no worries, I'll just buy some healthy alternatives to meat and fresh produce because it'll be way cheaper. I'm sorry to tell you, but that's also seen a price spike. 
like frozen veggies are up 18%, a tin of tomatoes is up 12%, canned beans up 11%, and your tin tuna is up a whopping 25%. Researcher Christine Zorba says while each item's only going up a couple of bucks, all that adds up over the year, and it's hitting Australians really hard. Why are we seeing these increases? Um, Manufacturers might say that increasing input costs have driven rises that they're passing on to consumers. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we've got industry to look at for this and our big supermarkets to ask why this is that they're passing on those costs to Australians who are just trying to get by. While the price of heaps of items has risen, the data from Deakin shows some products have actually become cheaper, including fresh veggies like carrots, lettuce and tomatoes. But that's only after extreme 150% hikes caused by devastating floods, surging fuel costs and global supply chain shortages. And Dr Zorbis reckons the government needs to do a better job at keeping food prices low. What we need is you know, everyone to come together and to commit to some sort of national nutrition or food um, strategy and plan where we have these regular check-ins and monitoring of the system, including food price in the system, because right now government's sort of taken a hands-off approach, said it's not our problem, food price will sort itself out, but we know that that's probably not true. Hack on Triple J. April McLennan with that story. A lot of you on the text line talking about the ridiculous prices you are paying. Someone says, I went to the supermarket today. One bag of groceries, $99 for one bag. Another person says, $4 for plain ass crackers. They're not happy with that. Someone else, I've started gaslighting meal boxes into sending me discount codes by cancelling my subscription because I know they're going to send me a promo code a month later for half price boxes. And that's the only way I can afford to cook fresh meals. Other people saying, yeah, my house's weekly shop gone up 50% in a year. It's ridiculous. We've got to regulate this duopoly. Well, let's get into that a bit more now. We've got an expert. Gary Mortimer is a professor of marketing and consumer behaviour at QUT, so he knows a lot about retail. Gary, thanks for coming on Hack. Grocery prices through the roof, as we're hearing on the text line now. The big supermarkets, Coles and Woolies, they're posting profits this week. It's pretty hard for ordinary Australians to swallow that. Like, what do we need to do to make basic food groceries affordable for more people? Well, listen, I guess it's it's a really challenging situation. We certainly saw last year food price inflation hit 8.9, even 9% in some cases. Um, And that's certainly been driven by supply costs. It's been driven by extra fuel prices, which is having an impact on logistics and road transportation. We've obviously got electricity prices going up. So all those same cost pressures that families are facing, businesses and manufacturers are facing. You're right about profits. Uh, I think what's really interesting is the amount of money Money they need to make in order to make those profits. So I think Coles made nearly $41 billion in sales to achieve a $1 billion in profit. Now, when you sort of put that in context, you imagine, uh, you know, your kids standing on the footpath selling lemonade, making $41 over a weekend, uh, and then you come along and take $40 off them for the costs that that incurred, and they're left with $1 left over. So, you know, while the profits seem large, they're, they're not when you start to look at the context and how they're being made. When it comes to, I guess, sort of putting a cap or a, or a limit on food uh, pricing, it becomes incredibly difficult, even if you focus on just the basics like milk or bread or flour, because all of those products need to be manufactured in some cases. 
So hypothetically, if governments were to say, listen, we're going to put a limit of $2 per loaf on your very basic uh, loaf of bread, uh, you would find that manufacturers would be uh, you know, hit with uh, production costs, wage cost increase, fuel price increase, all those costs that can't be controlled. Uh, and eventually they would make no profit on a loaf of $2 bread and they'd eventually leave the market. And you can imagine then the only people that would be selling bread is over $2 a loaf. It's interesting, right, that idea of caps on food prices because some countries have trialled this before and it seems like something that consumers would be very keen on. Any kind of cap on prices is something that would hit very well with ordinary Australians, but you're saying it may not actually work out in practice. Very difficult to control because of all those other input costs. So, you know, if we take the example off a loaf of bread and, uh, you know, government sailors, you, you know, we're happy for the market to, uh, you know, sell a whole range of breads at a whole range of prices and a whole range of brands, but we would require every supermarket in Australia to sell at least one very basic loaf of white bread for $2 a loaf. Whoever's going to manufacture that would be concerned about well, what happens with fuel pricing going up, what happens when I have to pay more wages. So that then creates some problems and, and then they decide just to simply not make that loaf of bread because it's no, no longer profitable to do so. Um, so. So it is challenging. And I think probably a more topical example would be the voluntary price cap that was placed on milk several years ago where all the supermarkets came out and said, listen, we're going to sell milk for $2 for two litres or a dollar a litre. And that created some really big challenges across the dairy industry. Is there an extra issue in Australia? Obviously, inflation is the driving factor here, but is there the extra issue of this duopoly between Coles and Woolworths that there's not more competition? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, certainly for for many years, there was a very, very strong duopoly here in Australia. I think that's certainly shifting and changing. Uh, You know, if we look today, you'd argue that probably Woolworths has about 36% market share, Coles has about 30% market share. So then they're at about sort of 65, 66%. 66%. It used to be close to 78%. That other part of the market is now being dominated by uh, an, uh, an international, uh, Aldi, that has certainly grown uh, in significance over the last 21, 22 years now. They captured almost about 12 to 15% market share. And then, of course, we've got uh, the IGA group, the Foodland group down in South Australia, uh, also dominating somewhere between 8 to 9%. So you've really got sort of four major players in the marketplace. And then on top of that, we've got the growth of Costco, that's now entered most capital cities, also offering bulk buy groceries. Um, you know, so, so the market is starting to fragment a little bit. And as long as there's two or three players, and certainly as long as there's a discounter like Aldi in the country, competition on price will remain hot. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Professor Gary Mortimer from QUT, a retail expert about, you know, the spike in grocery prices that everyone has noticed across the country. Also, the big supermarkets posting profits this week. Gary, the interesting thing about Woolworths and Coles, you know, posting their profits was that they also said people are stealing more and that's costing Mm. them. This is a huge issue for supermarkets at the moment. Seems to be growing, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there certainly was a correlation between, uh, you know, when there's tough economic times, families are doing it tough and uh, increased, lim- uh, I guess, frequency of theft. It's it's estimated that theft alone is costing Australian supermarkets uh, and grocery stores close to $9 billion uh, a year. And that's just the, the cost of actual theft and loss. Uh, every time you walk into a supermarket, you see those EAS gates, those electronic security uh, control gates, the EAS tags, and they are placed on product 
products, plainclothes security officers that walk through the stores, the exit gates now at some self-service areas, the self-service cameras, all of those extra costs. We talk about that billion dollars of profit that Coles made. A lot of that profit will now have to be invested back into, uh, I guess, security mechanisms. Gary, is wastage a big problem in terms of supermarkets losing money? Yeah, it is. And, and uh, obviously, wastage is uh, certainly a concern, particularly from a, an environmental and sustainability issue. And certainly across Europe and the EU, we've seen uh, you know governments step up to say, listen, we want to see zero waste. The, the challenges we have uh, across the board is, is that you know, consumers accept a certain quality or want a, an accepted quality, particularly in their fresh departments and fresh in that sort of meat, dairy, deli, meat departments, fruit departments. Those types of departments are highly perishable, Bread and bakery is highly perishable. You know, we, we've certainly, the retailers, supermarkets like Harris Farm and uh, Coles and Woolworths and Aldi, probably to a lesser extent, have trialled using things like ugly food, so misshaped fruit and veg, trying to, to sell that product somewhat unsuccessfully because when we walk in, you know, if you're like me, you, you tend to want to pick up the shiniest clean apple, you want the, you know, the most perfect banana because we look at the aesthetics of the product and, and then therefore we see a lot of waste happen throughout that supply chain at, at the farm gate at the markets and certainly when they reach the supermarkets and grocery stores. And just finally, Gary, do you have any tips for ordinary Australians on how they can be saving money? Yeah, listen, um, multi, multi-shop multi visits is, is, is probably the smartest way. So create a shopping list. If you're lucky enough to live near a large uh, shopping centre where it might have one or two or even not three supermarkets or grocery stores, shop across each of the brands. And we know most people do that every fortnight in order to save money. Don't forget that I guess the third tier discounters like the reject shop that also sells a range of groceries as well as confectionery and uh, of course of you know, personal needs shampoos. You know, you can buy in bulk and share that bulk across the family or, or neighbours. We've seen you know, people doing community shops or, or you sort of go back through that supply chain and, and visit sort of farmers markets to cut out the middleman or, or wharves to buy your seafood. Good advice there. I'm sure a lot of people will be listening and hopefully implementing some of that stuff into the weekly shop. Gary Mortimer from QUT Thank you very much for breaking that down for us. Thanks, Dad. Cheers. Hack on Triple J. And a lot of messages on the text line. Someone says, supermarkets are legally obliged to make money for their shareholders. That's someone's opinion there. Someone else says, it's not just consumers paying for this, it's the farmers selling sheep for practically nothing, yet meat remains expensive in these supermarkets and not reflecting the current market. Another person, I'm a single guy, weekly shop up to $90. It's bloody ridiculous. I want to go to someone on the line now. Mark from Yapoon has called in. Mark, what do you reckon? How do you think people should be, you know, getting around this? What's your opinion? Well, I sort of agree with Gary when he said cut out the middleman. We've done that for a long time and we've actually started to adopt the farmer's markets in the local areas and supporting our local farmers and getting that fresh produce from them directly. Um, and it, it's it's a cheaper option in the long term rather than going to your, your local supermarket of the Coles and Woolies. Yep. So I think people really need to explore that and give it an option because you're actually supporting your local farmers and getting that good prime produce. Hey, Mark, it's definitely something a lot of people are saying they're exploring more now. We've even got people saying, I use Facebook Marketplace and stuff like that to look for uh, fruit and vegetables that people have grown and they're, you're selling for a good price. Mark, thank you very much for calling in. Appreciate that. A lot of messages still coming in thick and fast. Time to move on. Hack. We've had a wasted decade. That will decimate rural communities. On Triple Jack. 
If you try and stay on top of the news, chances are you've heard something about the Murray-Darling Basin plan over the years. I'm not going to mess around. It's a bit complicated. Maybe it seems a bit boring, but it's important. Basically, it's a plan that sets out how water in Australia's biggest river network, the Murray-Darling Basin, should be shared because everyone wants the water. Communities, farmers, obviously it's vital for the environment too. And screwing up this river network would have devastating consequences for not only communities, but ecosystems right across the country. And because the rivers flow through different states, that makes it even more complicated. Not everyone's agreeing about the best way to protect it. But this week, the federal government's made an announcement about the plan and how it'll work in the years ahead. Joe Lauder's been taking a look. Anybody who's been following the Murray-Darling Basin plan would know that for years there have been warnings that the whole thing's pretty much going off the rails. This is Kath Sullivan. She's an ABC reporter and she's been following the politics of the Murray-Darling Basin for years. So I figured she'd be the perfect person to help me explain it. Well, I'll try. Let's start at the top. What is it? Apart from being bloody complicated, what it is is a plan that was agreed to by all of the states and the Commonwealth um, more than a decade ago now, setting out how water should be shared. The Murray-Darling Basin is Australia's largest river network and for a long time, basically too much water was coming out of the rivers. Farmers were taking water, other industries were taking water and it was having a really bad impact on the environment. You might remember those awful fish kills around Menindee a few years ago. That is just one example of what happens when too much water is taken out of the river system. A lot of places, especially South Australia, also rely on it for drinking water. So the five basin states, as they get called, and the federal government set a target for how much water they want to return to the environment, and they made a plan to get there. Cass says a lot of water comes out of the rivers through water licences for farming. The way that it's typically worked is that farmers are granted a licence to extract a certain amount of water from the river system each year, and they use that then to, to grow their produce. There are different ways to keep more water in the rivers, like fancy infrastructure projects to retain water, But the most controversial one is what's called water buybacks. Basically, it's when the government pays farmers to buy back their water licences and therefore keep that water in the rivers. But that means less water for farming. It also means that a lot of farmers sell their water licences back to the government and pack up and leave town. What happened was communities that were involved in the buybacks say they've had a real hit to to their socio-economic being, I suppose you could say. So the previous government put a cap on buybacks and the plan stalled. Yeah, so here we are less than a year out and the basin plan is still 750 gigalitres short of where it needs to be by June of next year. Yesterday, the Federal Water Minister, Tanya Plibersek, came out and released a proposal for how they're going to get there. We know that South East Australia in particular is getting hotter and drier. And although we've had a few wet years recently, we know that the next drought is just around the corner. Their plan involves restarting buybacks and extending the time frame to hit the target. What we're proposing is more time, more money, more options and more accountability. While most of the basin states are on board with this plan, Victoria isn't. It's still against buybacks. 
and farming groups are already getting fired up. Here's the National Farmers Federation CEO, Tony Ma. We've got real concerns that the government has immediately jumped to water buybacks. We know that there's been uh, any number of reports that says you take water out of the plan, out of the basin, you do a whole range of things. You risk food and grocery prices going through the roof. There's less water, so you can grow less things like broccoli and milk and all of these things that we value. If you think this is a done deal, think again. The government needs to get this through the parliament, so they either need the Greens or the Coalition to vote with them. The Greens support buybacks, but they don't support extending the deadline. We need to make sure that this parliament gets a guarantee that things will change, that water will be delivered. And it's the total opposite for the Coalition. We support the extension of time to deliver water to the environment through infrastructure. That's common sense. But to tear up their very own plan about water buybacks on the additional 450 gigalitres will have serious impact for regional rural communities. We feel under siege at the moment. Even within the parties, there are splits on this. At the end of the day, Kath Sullivan reckons it's something we should all care about. It's a natural resource that is for all Australians and Australians have already contributed billions of dollars. It looks like we're about to contribute billions more and I know it can seem really complex, but um, everybody should really be interested. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. Joe Lauder with that update. Very easy to understand when you break it down like that and we'll keep you across all of the developments that are announced from the government, from the states as well, in terms of the Murray-Darling Basin plan. I'm sure there'll be a lot more news on that in the months ahead. Hack. Cashless society. People say it's not going to happen. Guys, we are here. On Triple J. I'm sure you're not surprised at all to hear that cash transactions in Australia are at an all-time low. It feels like nobody's using it anymore. A lot of people aren't. And maybe if you've been overseas for a holiday, a trip, it's felt a bit weird to all of a sudden be using cash in countries where they still rely on it heaps. There's no secret, we're moving closer and closer to a cashless society. Are you ready for it? We're already hearing from some of you on the text line. Hack reporter Miles Holbrook-Walk hit the streets of Darwin earlier to ask you. Hack. If I said to you, in five years, no more cash at all, we're just going all card, how would you feel about that? Not great, because I've lived on the streets, I've done all that, and cash is the only way we can get around, you know? Cash is legal tender, so you have to allow cash but when COVID was happening a lot of businesses were saying no cash so I was just always using the card and since then I've just continued using the card. If I didn't get cash from work I would literally just use my phone. People tell me that the reason they want to use cash is because they don't want the government tracking their transactions. When I was living in Brisbane where most of the markets accepted card at all the stores I never cash. This is a real new thing for me. On Triple Jack. There's some people in Darwin speaking to our reporter Miles about cash, the death of cash in society. When could it be finally phased out for good? What are the consequences? We're hearing from heaps of you on the text line about this one. Popular topic. Someone says, no way should we ever go cashless. I use cash every day. Cash is king. It helps out the little guys. Someone else says, I'm starting to use cash again. I take out an amount at the start of the week, and that's all I'm allowed to spend that week. It's helping me save. Someone else, how do you have a large night on the town without cash? 
Yeah, I'm getting... It turns out a few of you do use cash a bit for all kinds of things. I'm sure you can imagine. Thanks for letting me know. But let's get into this a bit more about what the consequences could be. Chris Berg is the director of the RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub. He's with us now. Hey, Chris, thanks for coming on Hack. Thank you for having me. How many of us are still using cash in Australia? Uh, Look, so actually more than you think, which is um, uh, not very many. So about 13% of all payments last year were made in cash. Um, The vast majority of the rest were, of course, the opposite of cash, which is in this world and day and age is almost entirely digital. So could we see it disappear altogether in the years ahead? If we've had this big decline over the past few decades, when do you think we might not see cash anymore? So I doubt it's going to ever disappear completely, but it's absolutely the case that we're on a long-term decline. That decline is almost certainly going to increase and that cash is going to keep existing for very niche particular uses across the economy. You, um, uh, you, you raised earlier the fact that cash is legal tender. So I doubt that's going to change, but I also doubt that very many people are going to use it for anything but but unusual and niche transactions. The things that it's very good at, very low um, small payments and for industries that are politically disfavoured or where it's hard to get banking services. I've got an interesting message here. Someone says, if you've got the ability to live cashless without a second thought, that's an enormous privilege. There are so many people that face barriers to even getting a bank account. I mean, that's the case in Australia, but also around the world, I would think, in so many uh, developing countries. Who is most at risk if cash goes? Yeah, that's absolutely right. If you can't get a bank account, then you, in a only digital environment, you're going to really struggle to make basic payments. Um, of course, the government, if, if you're on Centrelink or something like that, the government is going to insist on paying you in, in digital money. Um, so they're not going to just hand you cash in all the um, extreme circumstances. There's also, um, you know, if you're earning money in a business, you're most likely to be earning money um, uh, with transfers to your bank account as well. So it's not a massive part of the population, but it's definitely a part of the population that struggles to get a bank account and is going to continue, or at least for part of their lives, is going to continue to rely on cash. I guess the other thing, Chris, that we heard some of the people we spoke to earlier uh, is the safety concerns, but also like privacy in terms of cash is pretty anonymous, isn't it? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Cash is the most anonymous payment system that we have. Um, When you pay cash, it's not like you're passing over any information about yourself apart from, you know, maybe what you look like, as opposed to when you make digital transactions where your bank can see, potentially the merchant can see um, uh, information, Um, the government can trace back data about, you know, how, what you bought and in fact, the other things that you purchased and can map out your entire spending patterns as well. Cash is a purely anonymous technology. And that's, that is one of the reasons that I think that it's going to remain as a part of our payment system, rather than uh, even if it's not a major part of our payment system, there's lots of people who want to be able to make anonymous payments, particularly if they're in legal industries, but legal industries that might, that governments or even banks or organisations might not like. Chris, do you think the way we pay for things is going to change a lot in the years ahead? I mean, you work uh, for the Blockchain Innovation Hub, so even things like the cards that we use now might be outdated in a decade, right? 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. So I think this is getting, uh, I think we are going to be shocked at the pace of change. So as you say, we've already moved, a lot of the population has moved away from cards themselves, a very futuristic technology, certainly with um, touch and go payments or to mobile phone payments. Um, we've got really high penetration rates of mobile telephones. Um, and it's not a surprise that we've upgraded our payments infrastructure to use mobile telephones. Then there are the new payment systems and new ways that we will exchange value. And obviously I study, and my team studies cryptocurrency. That'll be a big part of that story, but also stable coins, all these new frontier technologies that will provide us more um, uh, easier to use payment systems, more flexibility around payment systems and, and the way we pay. But I think I, cash will remain part of it, but I think we shouldn't forget how much radical um, disruption has already happened to the payments industry, the way we pay for things. Um, and we should expect a lot more in, in coming years. Yeah, it's fascinating to think about what could be different, especially in the next decade, in the next couple. Oh, we've got a little doggy in there got chiming a in. Dog, my apologies. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, we love that. We love the dog and we love you for breaking it down. Chris Berg from RMIT, thank you so much for coming on Hack. My pleasure and my dog was delighted as well. <laughs> Some messages on the text line. Someone says, I live in Sweden. I haven't had cash in years. I love it but you need extra apps and services that replace cash but can be used as easily as cash. Over here, it's an app called Swish. Someone else said, I tried to get $3,000 out on Monday, went to four ATMs and had to pay fees on all. I only got a fraction of that out. Someone else, my local doctors are charging card fees now. So it makes me want to use cash. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.